I'm Becky Gannon, and this is Mad About Miniatures. Today, we are going to talk about a woman who used miniatures in an extraordinary fashion. She created tiny little scenes of death. They were used to help police learn to investigate murder and other crimes. She is also now known as the mother of modern forensics. This previously unsung hero is the subject of Bruce Goldfarb's book, 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glessner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics. Let's go talk to award-winning author Bruce Goldfarb about this fascinating woman and her miniatures. Hi, Bruce. I'm so glad you could join us today. Hi, Becky. Thank you for having me. You are the author of the book, 18 Tiny Deaths, and that refers to 18 dioramas made by Francis Glesner Lee in 1946, right? That is correct. And they are not your usual Victorian dioramas. They are dioramas of murders. Well, death scenes, they're not all crimes, but they are definitely dioramas with a purpose. Right, and the purpose was to help train policemen to investigate crimes. Is that right? That is correct. They are basically 1940s virtual reality. And why did she decide to make dioramas instead of using pictures or film or, I don't know, drawings? Good question. Well, Frances Glessner Lee was the mother of forensic science, and she is really responsible for forensic medicine taking root in the United States. And in 1945, she began a seminar to train police officers. Before the mid 20th century, there was no homicide detectives, really. There was no training for police officers in, in forensic science. And so for lack of knowing any better, they would do things that compromised a crime scene and would derail an investigation. They would handle a murder weapon or walk through blood put their fingers through bullet holes. And so she took it upon herself to bring them up to speed. She began a, a week-long homicide seminar at uh, Harvard Medical School, it was up in Boston, at which they learned about sharp force injuries and blunt force injuries and strangulation and drowning and all these different modes of death. And they observed an autopsy. But one of the most important pieces is the crime scene because the, the police are at almost every death scene, and it, often they're the only people who are at the scene of a death. And so the things that happened in those first moments, what they did, affected everything else. Critical, I would think. You know, you can't just have a whole gaggle of police come with you on an investigation. So really important to be able to walk them through that. That's right, without disturbing anything. And, you know, you don't need to be inside and moving things. So what better way than to make a miniature that you can't go inside and disturb? They really achieve something that can't be done by any other medium. You really can't do it with moving pictures or even still pictures. So there's just no substitute for looking at a real three-dimensional object. Well, I think one of the things you had mentioned in your book was the photo sort of gives you a clue as to where to look. That's right. So if there's a close-up of the knife, all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe the knife means something. Exactly. But part of the point of looking at the miniatures is to look at it and say, well, was she just cutting apples with the knife, or is it important? 
That's exactly right. And that's why they're so amazingly detailed with a lot of extraneous information, a lot of clutter. And you really don't know what you're supposed to look at and you don't know what might be significant. And this is very true uh, mentioning a weapon because if you were to look through my home, I own knives. I, I have a baseball bat. I've got things that could easily be used as weapons. It's easy to jump to conclusions. If you see something like that, uh, that's not the right way to investigate. The trick is to work through that clutter, right? And to see what's important. Yes. And in some cases, there are, I wouldn't say clues, but significance in the clutter. Mm -hmm. One of her goals was to not just depict the facts of a sudden death, but also to give some impression of who these people were their station in life, their socioeconomic status, their state of mind. And so a lot is communicated indirectly by looking at the scene. And, and, and you can tell some of them, they just look depressing and dingy. Many of these are marginalized people. They're poor people. You can get a lot of information just by taking everything in. I thought one of the interesting things in your book was you said that she'd reached out to some fine arts miniatures, but she didn't need that kind of fancy furniture. She was looking for someone to make furniture that would fit in a working class house or that would represent somebody that's living in poverty. So she really couldn't use those type of artists for this. That's right. You know, she was a contemporary and a friend and a neighbor of Narcissa Thorne. And they were working on these around the same time. They were both working on miniatures. She went to some of her craftsmen and the products that they made, the furniture were just too good for her purposes. She needed something that looked like you could buy it in a secondhand store. Narcissa Thorne is the woman who is the founder of the Thorne Rooms, a collection of beautiful rooms showing all sorts of interior design. And they are absolutely gorgeous. They're stunning dioramas. But honestly, they look devoid of any human presence. They're perfect. They're beautiful. Everything is spotless. But you can't tell anything about the person who might have lived in that room. You know, you're right. And they serve that purpose very, very well. They're beautiful. Oh, they're gorgeous. If you're in Chicago, go see them. But she's trying to show something completely different, a way of life, something where you decide what to look at. That's right. And that was a very different challenge. I think that she achieved it quite well. Now, she made the figures because there was nothing commercially available that could go in all the different positions that the victim had to be in. That's right. There were figurines that were available, and they still are, but the limbs were rigid. They're all porcelain, and often they're fixed in position you know, with an arm held out or something, and, and the feet were attached to a base so they could stand upright, which is good for some purposes, but not if you're trying to show somebody hanging from a rope. So she had to create her own. They're sort of like almost little cloth dolls. Yes, and she used a variety of techniques to make them. Some do have filling in them to give them some heft. Some have wires that are hidden to keep them in a certain position. And she made all the little clothes and everything. She did, yes. That's amazing. But then she had some other people make some of the other furniture and other things. She basically acted as a general contractor. Some things are, are store-bought. I read her correspondence about the, the table settings and little dishes 
a lot of these little pieces were purchased. She was very creative in sourcing. She had front pages of newspapers made for her reproduced. She got the newspapers, had them photographically reduced, and made into a printing block for a single impression just to have a crumpled newspaper thrown on the floor. Wow, that is an attention to detail that you have to admire. It is. She went to, I, I was reading her letters and the search that she went on just to find the right kind of paper to print it on. It couldn't be real newsprint because that would age and crumble. So she searched and searched to find just the right weight of the paper with the right sort of translucency to it that would hold the ink well and look, you know, realistically enough like newsprint. And just that little detail, God knows what, you know, the effort, the time and the money that went into basically having a piece of trash on the floor. Well, she was a bit of a perfectionist. Yes. Maybe more than a bit. <laughs> she was obsessive. And she did have the time and money. I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting is she didn't really start in on this whole interest in forensic medicine till her 60s, right? Mid-60s? That is correct. She was introduced to it when she was 52 years old in 1929. And that was her introduction. So it was 1931. She was 61 when she began giving money to Harvard. She was 66 years old in 1943 when she was commissioned as the first woman captain, police captain in the United States, and 68 years old when she began the homicide seminar in 1945. That is so inspiring because what she is known for, she started late in life. Yes, she did. And she still made history and made a difference in that latter part of life that so many of us think we're not going to do anything with that. So it's really inspiring. Everything she achieved, and I can't overstate how much she achieved. She really revolutionized forensic science. Everything that we know of in a CSI-type crime scene investigation, that is directly attributable to Frances Glessner Lee and the work that she did. She really is the mother of forensic science. And that really came through in the book. I mean, I guess I had known her as the lady with the crime dollhouses. Yeah. But really, the dollhouses, which are a significant contribution, are just really one contribution of, her, of an overall tremendous push forward to propel this area into a science. The nutshells have sort of had a life of their own. Ever since the 1950s, 1940s, there were articles in Life magazine and Saturday Evening Post and Popular Mechanics about this... Uh, strange old woman and her dollhouses, these morbid dollhouses of death. That's what she uh, was known for. But really, it's almost an asterisk. It's a five-year period of her life and is, is just sort of a one-off thing. And I also want to point out, although she's known for doing the nutshell studies, she had done miniatures much earlier in her life. She had a background in creating miniatures. Tell us about that. Well, the family, the Glesners, were big supporters of cultural institutions and the arts, particularly the Art Institute of Chicago and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. John Jacob Glesner, her father, was one of the founders that uh, backed the, the orchestra getting it established. And it was in 1912 when her mother just sort of mentioned you know, how wonderful it would be to have the orchestra around the house every day so she could enjoy that. And that gave her the idea of reproducing 
the entire Chicago Symphony Orchestra in miniature, the same scale as the as the nutshells, and one inch to one foot. The entire display is about eight feet long. There are 90 pieces, all men. The orchestra was all men at the time. And their instruments, and each person is finished to re represent and resemble his real-life counterpart. Uh, Frederick Stock, who is the conductor of Chicago Symphony Orchestra, hand-wrote on pieces of paper about the size of postage stamps the score for each instrument, so every musician had the correct arrangement for his instrument. And she did the entire thing in three months. She did 90 pieces, including the formal evening wear, in uh, 90 days, which is, to me, that's just mind-boggling amount of productivity. It is mind-boggling. And also, that was really her first miniature, as far as we know. I mean, that is a big project to take on as your first project. And I think that speaks to the sort of personality that she had. She, you know, no matter how monumental a task seemed, she was totally undaunted. And she did it. She set her mind to, yeah, I'm going to do this. And she did it. She sure did. And she must have had a lot of artistic skills because she took these people from portraits she drew of them. Yes. And she invented her own compounds. What? Yes. To reproduce the hair. She invented, I don't know if she invented it, but um, she couldn't find porcelain hands, for example. So the hands of both the orchestra and the, the dioramas, you can see the use of this material that's a, a mixture of mucilage, you know, the librarian's paste, uh, which you don't see much anymore, and plaster of Paris. You combine them together, and it sets into a, she said it's as hard as glass. It makes a white, very, very hard substance that can be carved with great difficulty. But she used that to form the hands of subfigurines. And did she use that for the face as well? Not for the faces, but I believe that's what used for the hair. You said she did it in 90 days. Yes. So there were 90 members of the orchestra. She basically had to do at least one orchestra member a day. And their evening wear and their instruments. Some were acquired, but many of them were made. The wind instruments were carved out of wood. She used uh, wooden candy boxes for some things. The harp, there is a scale model harp that was made for her by a harp company. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's the sort of thing you can do if you're a millionaires. Yes, I think we've mentioned that she's from a wealthy family. As you'll see the more we talk about her, she did indeed have a great deal of wealth and, and used it. Yes, she did. And where is this piece today? Does it still exist? It does still exist. I saw it about a year and a half ago. It does need some conservation. It, it shows its age, but it still looks absolutely amazing. I believe that it is at the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra has it now. Oh, wow. That's incredible. And she did one other little piece. The string quartet, the Flanzeli Quartet. And she did that in 1914. Same scale, one inch to one foot. In fact, if you look at the pictures, the little bisque porcelain heads from the Flanzeli Quartet are the same heads that she used for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And they're the same heads, many of them, that were used in the dioramas. They, these people look familiar to me by now. Yeah, the Flanzeli Quartet, she finished them as they resembled in real life with the facial hair. She improved on her technique. She presented that to them. There's a whole passage in the book where they, she invited them over for dinner and had it hidden in a centerpiece beneath the table, which was revealed at the end of the meal to a flourish and uh, all the excitement uh, of these musicians seeing themselves in miniature, and that was a lot of fun. She was quite the entertainer, too. 
the entertainment, the end of this police seminar was very important to her. It was for various reasons, but you know, this was the way she was raised. She had these social graces. She was accustomed to going to benefits and events and teas, uh, these social events. She was a, a creature of her background, as we all are. And so she applied the background that she had and the skills that she had to the problems at hand. But she realized in doing this homicide seminar that the social aspect was very important. Well, for one thing, she wanted to impress upon the people who attended the homicide seminar that they were an elite. And so she gave them the finest meal that they ever had in their life. She spent the equivalent of you know, $30,000, $35,000 to take them all out for dinner and spent thousands on the centerpieces, and she expected them to behave as gentlemen. That aspect of it, that she knew that these people needed, today we call it networking. There wasn't a word for it back then, but you need to know one another. You need to communicate. And so that was one of the ways that she did it, was by the social events. And I understand Harvard, who to whom she gave quite a bit of money to start a forensic department, they didn't like the money being spent on the dinner, right? They wanted more of it to go to Harvard? Yes, they did. Uh, they would rather spend the money the way they wanted to spend it, which didn't always coincide with what she wanted to do. Uh, she preferred to spend her money and donate to Harvard. So she would see a need for something and rather than giving Harvard the money to do it, she would just acquire it and donate it to Harvard. And she did that with her books. She had an amazing collection of books on what was then called legal medicine. We now call it forensic medicine. And that's what she, the way she chose to do it. And the 18 tiny deaths. Yes, there were actually, Harvard had 19. There were actually 20 dioramas. There were actually more than 20, okay? She wanted to create around 50 of them, is what she envisioned, having a whole big gallery of them. There were apparently, at, at one time, there were 20 that were completed at Harvard. One of them, called Sitting Room and Woodshed, was returned to the rocks for a photo session, and for whatever reason, was never returned to Harvard. And so it remained at the rocks, and they found it a few years ago, literally up in the rafters, so that there were 19 that were used for teaching. When Harvard discontinued the program in the 1960s, these 19 were brought to Baltimore so they could continue the homicide seminar. One of them, unfortunately, was irreparably damaged. I don't know what happened. I heard it was crushed. It was the only one that showed a before and after. It was two identical rooms with 30 subtle differences in between the two that you were supposed to detect. So that leaves 18. So the ones that remain so different, you know, there's, they're showing blunt force trauma, they're showing all sorts of different types of death. That's right. And then she was so dedicated to being authentic that with the burned cabin, she actually took a blowtorch to it after she did a ton of work to make it look realistic. Yes. Now you have to appreciate that she spent thousands to make each one. She spared no expense. So each one I've read, and I suppose it's true, that each one costs about as much as a, as a house. Wow. And even back in the day, they, they cost 3500 to $5,000, $6,000 for each one. But even $3,500, my parents' first house in the 1950s was, what, $5,000, 5500 So you could probably buy a house in the 1940s for $3,000. 
Yeah, and then she burned it. So she literally had money to burn. And I, I've had many people visit. I've had artists visit. I've had model makers visit. And the big puzzle is how you burn something so precisely without destroying it. How do you put out the flames? She didn't use water. She didn't use sand. She didn't use a fire extinguisher that left a residue on it. So I have no idea how she burned that. I don't think anybody does. So that'll remain a mystery. There are many mysteries with them, but that is definitely one. So these dioramas, they don't have a, you know, you can't say who did it because you don't have enough information for that. Right. But there is a key. There are secret answers. That is correct. They're kept under lock and key. Only one person has them. The guy who keeps them is, he goes by Jerry D. Jerry D. Chihowitz. Uh, he's the keeper of the secrets. And it's literally in a, in a file folder under lock and key, and nobody gets to see it. And tell us your relationship to these dioramas, because that's just fascinating. My whole career, my whole life has just been a sort of meandering path. Before I was at the medical examiner's office, I had committing journalism for many years. Uh, I wrote freelance stories, and I first heard about the dioramas in the early 1990s. I wrote about them for the newspaper of the American Medical Association, American Medical News. American Medical News liked feature stories about doctors and interesting hobbies. If a doctor had a vineyard or a doctor collected art. So I, I wrote about a motorcycle gang of doctors. So I thought, you know, this is cool. This is art in the service of science. And they bought it. So um, that was it. That was my introduction to them. But I returned several times. People would ask me to arrange for a visit. I'd be calling up Jerry D and annoying him to let us come see the dioramas. And People were coming from out of town. I'd take them to go see the nutshells. And so they knew me at the medical examiner's office. It wasn't until uh, 2012, the medical examiner's office opened their, a new building, this gorgeous state-of-the-art facility. It was huge. And so uh, I arranged uh, a friend of mine to conduct a tour and show us the new building, a group of editors. During this tour, uh, Mike, who was doing it, he happened to mention, we've got this new, we got this opening it's a new position for an assistant to the chief, for a public information officer. We never had a public information officer before, and I knew right away that it was meant for me. And I applied, and I got the job. And the thing is that the nutshells never came up. It was never discussed, never mentioned, my familiarity with them, none of that. And it wasn't until I began and was then on staff, because I was the new guy, the low man, Jerry D. basically tossed the keys at me and said, here, you deal with them. You're your problem now. You can change the light bulbs. You deal with it. <laughs> okay. So, you know, that's how I, um, I got to learn about them more and uh, had the opportunity to inspect them closer uh, inside the cabinets. And people would come to visit. I, I met the, the Glesner family and Bill Tyre, who is the curator and executive director of the Glesner House in Chicago and, and other people. And I'm, I'm naturally sort of an archivist, an amateur historian, so I, I collected material. I collect photographs and articles, and when I'd find something about the dioramas, basically became the, the de facto curator of the, of the nutshells. How wonderful to have access to them, and, and a great job. You know, if that's the, if that's the new guy job, that's pretty good. <laughs> I know. I wasn't going to complain, and the funny thing was nobody else wanted to do it. Wow. I know. Amazing. I can't really understand that. <laughs> I would have changed those teeny tiny light bulbs. 
And you had a front row seat at the renovation, which we have to remember these rooms, dioramas, are were what, 80 years old and starting to show their age? Yeah, they were. They were cleaned in the early 1990s. Not really a conservation, but they did went underwent a you know some work in the early 90s. I had noticed some things, and there was a couple of them. One called the kitchen had a, a can light in the ceiling, and I, I was pretty sure that material was asbestos. There was crumbly material. It was a concern. Several of them had asbestos in it. Uh, I noticed some. The windows that were made out of acrylic were warping. They're illuminated by incandescent bulbs, which are hot and have damaging rays. And so they were showing their age. Uh, things were peeling and cracking and deteriorating. There was a concern that it would reach a point where they would be harmed irreparably. It was rather really fortuitous that the Smithsonian reached out to us. And that's another just, just weird coincidence that happened to work out well. They offered to uh, put them on exhibit. Did you say they Googled Creepy Dollhouse? That's what she told me. Nora Atkinson, who is the curator of the American Art Museum, Smithsonian's American Art Museum, Renwick Gallery. Uh, and the Renwick Gallery is dedicated to crafts. And it's on literally on Pennsylvania Avenue across the street from the White House. Couldn't ask for a better location. She called me up one day and uh, she said, you know, who she was. And, you know, can we come see the dioramas? And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, she told me that she had... They were doing a, an exhibit of another artist, and she told me that she Googled creepy dollhouses, and the nutshells came up number one. It was the top result. And she never heard of them before, and realized, oh, they're right up the street in Baltimore. This is 35 miles away. Let's go check them out. I think there were two or three that just came up and to look at them, and she's just thinking out loud and blue skying, what if, what if, you know, you know, maybe would you consider putting them on exhibit? There's a few problems with that, one being the homicide seminar. They would have to be done in between the seminar. They'd have to be here for the seminar. That was the time constraint. And the other problem was that they would have to undergo conservation in order to be moved down the street. So they'd have to do the work at the OCME. It was just uh, you know the right thing at the right time. They really need it. And how awesome would that be? We couldn't have done it otherwise. We couldn't have afforded it. There was absolutely no money to do anything like that. I was going to say, the money, the expertise. No, we could not have paid for it. I mean, these people, and they are a team of people. Ariel O'Connor was the, the head conservator, but she had a group who was with her. She had interns and artists, the lighting person, Scott Rosen, uh, Rosenfeld. These are some of the best in the country at what they do, and he had people. There is a whole team that just dealt with moving art. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. But that's a whole specialty in itself. Wow. There was probably, I don't know, it was well over a dozen people. I, I don't know how many people were really, you know, totally involved in the whole thing. It was an extraordinary, amazing experience to watch them at work. And you were there every day. I did get to see it all. I was there for one thing, just sort of to, to represent the OCME, to witness, make sure that nothing happened. And watching them work, I was struck that they used ultraviolet light to examine it. They had they used little evidence bags, and they took photographs with little tape measures. And I swear, it looked like a little crime scene. They, they were doing a little miniature forensic investigation. And the principles are the same. You, you have to know who, what, when, where. You need to know what material you're dealing with. It, it was just amazing to me. It just blew my mind. They are. They are investigating these objects. 
there's awful lot of material science uh, that's involved in conservation. And, and I had no idea. Well, and they must have worked even smaller than usual with tiny paintbrushes and it was mostly cleaning, right? There was a good deal of cleaning. They did a variety of things. A lot of it, much of it was cleaning. Conservation, when it's done well, you don't see it. It's not about restoring. That's the way it used to be when they did uh, a restoration and you make something look like as it looked when it was brand new. And that's not what they do anymore. Oh, really? It's not about making it look brand new. It's about preventing its further deterioration, preserving it as it looks now. So good conservation, you can't tell. It's invisible. So they did in painting. There was linoleum that had cracked and peeled. And visually, it didn't mean anything, but visually there were these distracting cracks that ran through the diorama. And so they matched the paint and did the infilling in, in painting. It's just less apparent. I mean, you can look, if you look closely, you can see that it's been repaired. But if you're you know, examining it and you're not paying attention to it, it just sort of uh, glosses over. There were some repairs to things that had to be done. And another question is to what point you are restoring it to, because things have changed over the years. They, they do exhaustive research. Uh, and she discovered that certain light fixtures had been changed in different dioramas. And even one body had been previously put in a different diorama. You have to ask what it is you're, you're trying to achieve. Previously, Ariel O'Connor worked on the Schwartz Air Space Museum. She's only one of five people who was in the Apollo 11 uh, capsule after it returned from the moon. She's the only woman who's been inside that capsule since it returned to the moon. But anyways, she worked at her in Space Museum. And one of the things that she worked on was the, the Enterprise model from the TV show Star Trek in the 1960s. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she had photos of the Enterprise. I'm asking her questions about the Enterprise, and I'm just absolutely thrilled to see all these pictures. And she's asking me questions about the diorama. We're both about, you know, a couple of fans, uh, each going crazy about other things. But I, I didn't know that when Star Trek was filmed, in the first season, they only showed one side of the, of the Enterprise. And so the, the other side, the left side of it, was never completed. Those little engine things only had one side to it. So for the second season, they completed, and they did it uh, so it was complete three-dimensional all the way around. And then I believe later on, they added lighting to the, the model. So, you know, when you're, quote-unquote, restoring that model, which time period is it you want to restore it to? And it was like that with the dioramas. It's, what is it exactly we're trying to do here? But they, they did find some old photos, some subtle changes. They had been moved between Boston and Baltimore. Things had gotten jostled around. There was a stick that was in the barn. I don't know how it got inside, but she found the stick. And through the ultraviolet light, she found the points where it was glued. So she was able to put that back as it was in the photo, as Francis Bessnerly did it. Oh, that's wonderful. And I assume they probably consulted with, with you a little, too, with the history or to kind of determine what the appropriate point was. We had many discussions. And, uh, you know, there's, there's one called three-room dwelling. It's the largest one. It's the only one with a baby in it. In the, the bedroom where the mom and dad are, there's a rocking chair that's tipped over on its side. There's also in the baby's room there are a couple toy rocking chairs that are on the dresser. Those are also knocked over. And I had assumed all this time 
that those had accidentally been knocked over. I always wanted to pick up those little things on the dresser. But when she did the conservation, she discovered that there is a thread that went all the way through the dresser that held everything in exactly that position and attached to, to those chairs. So the drawer that's open just to scooch, that's purposeful. That is put there to hold that drawer in exactly that spot. And those rocking chairs on the dresser are meant to be laying down. But the rocking chair that's in the master bedroom, I can see in old photographs that it's upright. At some point between the 1950s and, say, the 1960s or 70s, that rocking chair got put on its side. And I wanted it to put it upright. It, it looks like it meant to be upright. It looks like there's a struggle when there may not have been a struggle. But ultimately, the feeling was that it's been that way for a generation now, and everybody who's gone through the training has seen that chair sideways. So to make that change at this point wouldn't be fair. It was one of those things that could have gone out of the way. We left it laying down, although I, I do think it should be standing upright. That's fascinating that there were so many decisions to make. And then tell me about the exhibition. It was at the Smithsonian. Did a lot of people come and see it? What was the reaction? The reaction was crazy. They had to get them to the Smithsonian. So they did the conservation, and then they, they had to make custom-made boxes. They had foam boxes. Everything was secured just to move them 35 miles down the street. This is where that specialty of moving art came in. Oh, yes. But everything that could be removed was removed. Everything that could not be removed, if there was like a, a banister, they put foam wedges. So everything it would fix everything in place and then fill the voids with like tissue paper. And then they built these foam boxes that were custom made to hold them exactly in, inside. And then those went in custom made cardboard boxes. They had a truck that's a special air cushion truck and they're taken in three trips, only six at a time, in one layer between equidistant between the front and back wheels. So it was the pivot point of the truck where there's the least vibration. And that's the way they did it. Everything had to be examined once they received absolutely no damage in the transport back or forth. But that in itself was a whole thing. And they went on exhibit, 100,000 people went to go see them. Really? Yeah. It was the second most popular exhibit in the history of the Renwick Gallery. Seriously? Yes. Wow. The room was packed. They were totally overwhelmed. They weren't expecting that. Had they known that they were going to get that sort of response, they would have given up more space. Every time I went, that room was packed solid. And I, I didn't even want to go inside the room. I, I didn't want to take the space away from somebody else. A big success. Just the work and care, so lucky to be able to get that, to preserve those. It was very fortuitous. We couldn't have asked for a better group of people. I feel so much better that they have been looked at, they've been inspected, they've been cleaned. They're good for another generation or two. They're in better shape now than they have been since the 1950s. Oh, that's really wonderful. Now, a little more about Frances. So just to put it in perspective for people, she first got to know a little bit about pathology through her brother's best friend, correct? That's right. George Burgess McGrath. McGrath was a medical doctor who was trained as a pathologist, and he was appointed as a medical examiner in uh, for Suffolk County, which includes Boston. And one thing that I read, you know, I always wondered why some people are medical examiners, some states have coroners, 
But really, you know, before Francis Glassner leave, there was almost no way in some states to, to really investigate or hold a murderer accountable. There was really no one examining bodies. Sometimes the coroner had little or no medical background at all. That's right. And neither did doctors. There's not a lot of post-mortem information taught in medical schools because doctors treat living people. You learn about living people and not so much about dead people. So this was really a crusade of hers to get medical examiners everywhere, to change the current system, not just training the police, but also to have pathologists who did specialize in forensics, correct? This was part of her overall plan. That's right. And that was part of why they started the Harvard Pathology Department. There was no training before then anywhere in the country to be trained as a forensic pathologist. There was no such thing as a forensic pathologist. So she started giving money to Harvard for this pathology department, but there was sort of a, always a little give and take, a little ambivalence in that relationship. Am I right? I think that worked both ways. Not to mince words, she was a manipulator. She used her wealth and influence to get her way. She knew what she wanted. It was important because Harvard did have the prestige. You know, she could have dumped Harvard and taken it somewhere else, but she felt that really it meant something that it's uh, associated with Harvard. And it was new. It was new and it needed some, some backings, some credentials. That's right. And it never really did, you know? I mean, Harvard never really got into it. They didn't like the idea of training police officers, especially city cops. They drew the line at city cops. They did not want Boston City Police on the Harvard campus, mixing it up with the elites. I mean, that's we just can't have that. That's just the way they were. Honestly, they tolerated her, barely tolerated her because they were certain that they were gonna get a payoff when she died, that there'd be money for them in their will. She gave money during her life, but what they really wanted was that estate that she promised them. She promised them, yep. At least a million bucks, maybe two. Yep, you do what I want. And how much did they get up on her death? Yeah, they had a falling out. Uh, she had a falling out with, with Harvard in the 1950s. She ended up cutting them out of the will. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, well, she was going to donate the dioramas uh, to Harvard, the nutshells as well. Uh, but she changed her mind, and she said they're, they're not going to get the dioramas, and they're not going to get any money. So she kind of strung them along. She did. Yes, yes, she did. Well, you know what? you got to give it to a woman who wasn't college-educated, you know, fighting with these Harvard elites, and she held her own. She did, and honestly, you know, I read their correspondence. I mean, these people at Harvard, it's shocking how money-grubbing they were. You know, they're practically, you know, rubbing their hands together gleefully. You know, we're going to, you know, once she kicks the bucket, I mean, how old? She's already old. She's not in good health. We don't have to wait all that long. You know, with any luck, you know, we're going to get a couple million bucks out of this. And she knew it. They tolerated her, but never regarded her as a peer. Right. And they no longer have a forensic pathology lab, and they do not lead the country in advancement or, or even a player in that field. Is that correct? That is correct. They don't even have a forensic pathologist on their faculty. Harvard does not acknowledge Francis Glessner Lee in any way by, you know, a plaque, uh, anything like that. The library that she established, the George Bridges McGrath Library of Legal Medicine, which was at the time priceless collection of books that she gathered and had donated to Harvard. All those books have been taken over by the main library, the Countway Library of Medicine. 
So even the library that she established no longer exists. There's no trace of Francis Klesner Lee at Harvard Medical School today. And it's only recently that she's being recognized that way. If you read about her, you read the wiki page about her, you read about her online, she's still this creepy old grandmother, rich grandmother who made weird dollhouses. She's so much more than She is. But, you know, part of that I was reading what you said. She didn't want to be front and center, kind of tried to stay out of the limelight. She did. As I mentioned, there were a number of articles that were written about the dioramas in the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, all of the big publications at the time. Life magazine, uh, you can't get bigger than that. But of all the photos of the dioramas, of all the photos from Harvard, uh, and she is mentioned sort of in passing, there's that one picture of her in Life magazine. So they're all men looking at the dioramas. And I think she just got tired of it. You know, the same story has been written literally over and over. You know, enough already. It's, you know, it's not about me. Stop writing about me. It's the subject it really needs to be the, the attention, not, not me. Well, what fascinates me is even to this day, we still have coroners who don't necessarily have to have the type of education we would expect if we watched CSI. That's right. And then some states have medical examiners. So That's it's right. a real mishmash. I was up in, in Upper Michigan not long ago in, in the Upper Peninsula. They don't have a forensic pathologist up there, and they don't even have you know forensic investigators, really. The, the police do the crime, the scene investigation. They have a, a local doctor who can look, but if somebody needs an autopsy, uh, the nearest forensic pathologist is eight hours away. And I'm not sure everyone really realizes it, but then on the other hand, in Maryland, at the chief medical examiner's office where you work, you know, everything is state-of-the-art. It, it is a very good one. Maryland's a very small state. We're unique in that way that we can do it centralized. It, it does make a difference. So we have a, a trained forensic investigator go to every scene, every time. And, and those sorts of things make a huge difference. You know, when you watch CSI, you sort of think the whole country is like that. And the truth is it's still sort of a mishmash of different systems, and not every case gets that kind of attention. Yes, and in general, most of the cities tend to have medical examiner's offices. So if you're in an urban area, you're much more likely to have a competent forensic investigation. Where you find coroners and questionable practices tends to be in rural areas. What are the qualifications to be a coroner? It depends on what the state law says. A coroner, they're often elected. But some places, Nevada, for example, the state law says that the coroner must be a doctor. The coroner must be a medical examiner. So Las Vegas, they call it a coroner's office, but they actually are forensic pathologists like we have. And that's the model for CSI, the TV show. But in many places, and not to pick on Missouri, Indiana, uh, Colorado, in Missouri, to be a coroner, you have to be over the age of 21. Uh, you have to have lived in the state for uh, one year. You have to live in that jurisdiction for at least six months. And you have to uh, get more votes than the next person. You don't have to have any medical training, any legal training before you're signing death certificates. To be a licensed barber in Missouri to cut hair legally, you must have 1,500 hours of training and pass a test. To be a nail technician and to legally give a manicure, 
you have to have 500 hours of training and pass a test. But if you're elected coroner over the age of 21, you can crack open a beer, you're good to go. You can start signing cause and manner of death and death certificates. Sounds like we still have a little ways to go there. <laughs> we have a lot, a lot to go. About half of the country is still on the coroner system. That's insane. That's It's really interesting because I just think this is something that isn't widely known or widely understood. And what do you think of all the things she did? You know, how would you sum up her contribution? Or is that too big a question? It is an awfully big question. She did so much. It, it just goes to show what one person with determination and having some millions helps, but what one person can do, the difference that one person can make. But, you know, she had an amazing mind. She was a voracious reader. She read everything. You know, she was not a dilettante. She was one of the preeminent criminologists of her time. She was regarded and respected by her colleagues, not at Harvard, but in the field. She was very well respected. She was fluent in French. She could read and write Latin, German, Italian, French, and just absolutely just an amazing background in the arts and culture, music, you name it. You know, people say, you know, it's a shame she shouldn't go to medical school. Had she gone to medical school and she probably could have been a very fine doctor, but she wouldn't have done this. And she, we wouldn't have the nutshells. We wouldn't be where we are now. Just like I wouldn't be where I am had I not taken this meandering path, I don't think that the country would be where we are had she not had these obstacles and experiences that she had and the skills, you know, the, the path that she had in her life. She also just seems like the kind of person that was looking for something to make a difference for. She was, and she said, she felt that she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She didn't do anything to earn which, all that she had. And she really felt an obligation to basically prove her value. I think that she was attracted to huge tasks. You know, she undertook this whole mission to modernize death investigation because A, it needed to be done, and B, nobody was doing it. So there's a huge untapped opportunity waiting for somebody to take charge. And she did it. She was just the, the right person at the right time, and we're all better off for it. Do you have a favorite of the the nutshell case dioramas? Oh, they're all so wonderful. <laughs> Probably if you were to ask me different answers on different days, that it goes back and forth. All in all, in terms of the most in the smallest space, the most impact, the most meaning is the one called Dark Bathroom, where this woman is in the bathtub with the water running on her face. And all it is is a very small bathroom. And the entire diorama is eight inches tall, maybe five inches, five or six inches wide, and uh, nine or so inches deep. It's not very big. But if you look closely, there's the worn spots in front of the commode where the feet would be, and in front of the door. There's schmutz on the wall from over the register. If you look very, very closely, beneath the sink, the boards beneath the sink are water-stained. There's actually water stains. And you get the sense of you know, there's this beautiful stained glass window. You know, it tells a story. This was a once grand residence that has fallen on hard times. And it tells the story, actually, of what happened to Prairie Avenue, where their house was in Chicago, which did get encroached by commercial development across the street. There was opened up basically a, a halfway house for alcoholics. Uh, the neighborhood was came uh, for transients and poor people and 
And so I think that this one little diorama tells a, a story of her house. It was a once grand mansion broken up into a rooming house. And I mean, there's an awful, awful lot of empathy, information, meaning. It's in a very, very small space. I can look at that one just for hours and hours and hours. It's just, there's so much to it. Well, and these dioramas that we used as a teaching technique back in the 40s, the, the seminar still goes on today, right? And they're still used in these classes. They are. The seminar is very traditional. It's run the way she used to run it. They still go out for a fancy dinner. They still get a, a diploma that says Harvard Associates in Police Sciences and a lapel pin. So they still use the dioramas as they were intended. I've looked at the curriculum, the program from some of the first seminars, and very little has changed over the years. And the way the dioramas are used, you're asked to look at them. Yes. And then after a few days or after a certain amount of time, then they're supposed to say what issues came up or what they noticed. That's right. And that's an important piece of it. It's not just looking. Look at the diorama and then give a report to somebody. Describe what you're seeing and describe what might be meaningful to it. But describe it to somebody. And, and that's the other other piece, which you got it to do when do with the forensic investigation. Observe it accurately and then tell somebody what you see. And so that whole exercise is a very important exercise and it still serves the same purpose today. That's really a tribute to the way she thought, the way she executed it, her brilliance, her determination. Yes. Well, Bruce, it has been just a pleasure talking to you. And I loved your book, 18 Tiny Deaths. It was really fascinating. And really, I just learned a lot more about miniatures. But even more importantly, I learned about the, the mother of modern forensic medicine. It's awfully nice to talk with you, Becky. Thank you for having me. I, I love that people are interested in the dioramas. Art in the service of science, it's always good particularly when they're appreciated by miniaturists and people who really know what they're looking at and what they're talking about. It's very gratifying that she gets the recognition that she, that she deserves. Well, yes. And, you know, that's what I love about miniatures. They're an art form, but they can really be used in so many different ways. And I just love the way she envisioned this being used and how it really is an incredible teaching tool. And it's still the best way of doing it today. Right, right. Thank you, Bruce. Really appreciate it. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. I really enjoyed talking to Bruce. And you can find him on Instagram at 18tinydeaths, which is also the name of his book. My next episode is December 14th, and I'll be talking to Amanda and Bree, two miniaturists who were on HGTV's Biggest Little Christmas Showdown last year. They competed in the finale for $50,000 and impressed us with their magnificent modern minis. Who can forget the Christmas-themed tiki boat? But before then, I have an event happening on Instagram, December 9th to 11th. Come join me for the second annual Light Up Mini World. Share photos of your miniatures with holiday lights, which can be starlight, candlelight, fireplace, anything, and let's spread Love, light, and holiday cheer on Instagram. Use hashtag LightUpMiniWorld and tag me at MadAboutMiniatures. More details on my Instagram. I hope you'll join in on the fun. Until next time, remember, 
There are no rules in your dollhouse except the ones you create for yourself. Goodbye.